Well, when I was living in England over a decade ago now, feels like yesterday, but um, I had one really memorable dinner conversation. Uh, I was sitting in the cafeteria in our college in Cambridge, um, and I'd gone to dinner with three undergraduates who were Christians. They were in my Bible study in our college. Um, but because the cafeteria was really crowded that night, we ended up at a table with this guy that we didn't really know. And before long, we got into a conversation with him about God. And because it was so crowded and noisy, and I was the one who was actually sitting next to this guy, my friends were sitting across the table, um, it was mostly a conversation sort of between me and him, and my friends were largely like listening and praying as it went along. Um, now the interesting thing is that in our Bible study, we had recently been noticing how Jesus spent so much of his conversation time with other people asking them questions. And often he even responded to their questions with questions, which is kind of amazing when you think about how much he had that he could have said to them, that he starts by asking them questions to help them see their own hearts, to help them discover their own hunger for the truth um, before he shares anything with them. So at this time, I was working on imitating this about Jesus, and my conversation with this random guy in the cafeteria was like a perfect chance to practice. So I asked him a lot of questions, um, and fortunately he was really talkative, and he had a lot of ideas about spiritual things that he wanted to share with us. And toward the end of this conversation, sort of animated conversation, he said to me kind of forcefully, when I die and stand before God, and he asks me, did you do your best to live a good life? I will be able to say yes. Now, I was tempted to launch into an explanation about what the Bible actually says is going to happen when he stands before God. But I was trying to stick to my experiment to just start by asking questions. And in that instant, the Holy Spirit gave me just the right question for him. So I looked at him and I said, how do you know that's going to be the question? In other words, how do you know God's going to ask, did you do your best to live a good life? And I will never forget the look on his face. It was like the wind was taken out of his sails. His face almost looked, I still have a picture of my head, like physically deflated. And he had this sort of stunned, puzzled look on his face. And he said, I guess I don't know. I, ne I, I never thought about that. <laughs> and of course, then it was the right moment to share a little bit of what Jesus says about the final day when we stand before God. So what is God's question going to be on Judgment Day? How do we know what he's going to be looking for, right? What's he going to be asking us about? Well, that's what our gospel passage this morning in Luke 11 is about. Because Jesus implies here that the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba are going to be better off on the Judgment Day than some of the people that he's talking to in Israel. Why would that be the case? Well, I want to restart, start by rewinding a little bit. Last week on Downton Abbey, okay? <laughs> the passage that we did last week, that we looked at last week, let's talk about what happens right before this conversation that we're looking at today. Remember, Jesus had just cast out a demon that was mute, and that was one of three impossible-seeming miracles that the rabbis had decided only the Messiah would be able to do. Okay, so Jesus had just done a really big deal miracle. 
And the people who saw it responded to him in three different ways. So last week, John preached about two of those responses. And this week, we're looking at that third group of people who responds to this miracle. Um, and this third group is basically kind of unresponsive, okay? They were unsatisfied with the signs that Jesus was showing them, and they demanded different signs, more proof on their terms. So in verse earlier, in verse 16 of Luke 11, we read that this group, quote, to test Jesus, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Okay, they kept seeking a sign from heaven. They weren't satisfied with the amazing things that Jesus was doing right in front of them. They wanted a different kind of proof. It's possible that they wanted a heavenly sign. A sign from heaven is what they asked for. Something in the sky, in other words, in the way they picture the world. Something to do with creation, rather than just a miracle involving people or demons, things on this earth, okay? They're demanding a sign from heaven. But in any case, they want to see more or they're not going to respond to Jesus. I had a neighbor in high school who, who was a lot like this. He had Christians in his life who were welcoming him out of his broken family into their own lives um, and talking to him about Jesus. He was reading parts of the Bible, but he wasn't satisfied. He kept asking God for very specific signs. Like, I remember once he was taking a walk and he asked God for a lightning bolt in a particular part of the sky, like within 30 seconds. Like, literally, that was the story he told. And when those things didn't happen, he would be mad and conclude that God didn't exist or must not care about him. That's sort of the attitude that we're seeing here. They want different signs, more proof on their terms. And in the verses we're looking at today, Jesus responds to this kind of reaction, and he calls this attitude evil. We're going to be focusing this morning just on verses 29 to 32. And in these verses, Jesus says two things to this group of people. First, he says that he is the main sign they're going to get. And secondly, he says there are two ways that they need to respond to him, which they're not doing, and that is to listen to him and to repent. So he's the sign, and there are two things they need to do to respond to him. So first, look at verse 29 in your leaflet um, in the Gospel reading. Luke eleven twenty-nine. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So what sign did the Ninevites get? Jonah. Right? They got Jonah himself, a random Israelite prophet showing up in their capital city hundreds of miles from his home to deliver a message from God. After disappearing for three days, right, into the belly of a big fish, he narrowly escaped death to bring life to God's enemies, to offer life to God's enemies. And Jesus says to these Judean crowds, what sign are they going to get? Jesus, right? An Israelite prophet showing up in their capital city, far from his home, to deliver a message from God. And later, as we as he hints about in, in Matthew's gospel, after disappearing for three days in a tomb, he escapes death to offer life to God's enemies, okay? So as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus says to them, you want a sign? You're looking at him, right? You guys get one sign, and that's mm -hmm. me. Think about how ridiculous it was for people to demand a sign and ignore the fact that Jesus, God in the flesh, was standing right in front of them. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus himself is the sign that they get, and there are two ways that they need to respond, and that's what we see next. Jesus talks about their reaction to him, their response to him, by comparing it to the way that people reacted to God's chosen leaders in the past. So first we see the Queen of Sheba. Look at verse 31. The Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, in order for us to understand what it means for Solomon to be wise, and to understand what it means for Jesus to be wiser or greater, we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning here in this part of the passage in verse 31, looking at the wisdom tradition in the ancient Near East. Because without it, I think you miss the full force of what Jesus is saying here. So hang in with me. We'll take a little time here, but I promise it will be relevant. Or I hope it will be relevant. Okay. <clears throat> so the Queen of Sheba seems to have come from southwest Arabia, modern-day Yemen, okay, um, south of Saudi Arabia. And she was one of many powerful Sabaean, that's the adjective for Sheba, queens um, who were in this area in this period. We know that they had a very powerful <coughs> tradition of queens. So she would have traveled over 1,200 miles by camel to visit Solomon. Now Solomon was only the third king of Israel, right, at the beginning of the 10th century. So he's ruling this baby nation, right? And, but it was under his rule that Israel becomes this big, prosperous, internationally recognized deal. It, his reign was largely a time of peace in Israel. There wasn't much fighting on their borders. So what happens when there's peace? You see all, all kinds of other things begin to flourish, right? Mm -hmm. And we see that in Solomon's reign. There was art and literature and architecture and music. All these things flourish in Israel during this time. Um, scientific inquiry, all this is happening because of, of, their of the time of peace. Um, but you might remember that one unusual thing about Solomon himself was his wisdom, right? So when he came to power and he was given the invitation to ask the Lord for whatever he wanted, he asked for wisdom to be a good ruler. And he got it, right? He wrote a good portion of what we call the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So much of the book of Proverbs is attributed to him, and he's probably the author of Ecclesiastes as well. But in order to understand Solomon's reputation for wisdom, you have to know that writing about and studying wisdom was a really big deal in the ancient Near East. Archaeology keeps confirming and adding to our knowledge of what's called the wisdom tradition in the ancient Near East, okay? We have Egyptian wisdom texts um, from as early as 2450 BC. So that's way before Abraham, even, okay? They were studying and writing about wisdom. In the similar period, we have Mesopotamian texts from ancient Sumer and from the area of Canaan. And we have later um, Babylonian texts from about the second millennium BC. All of these nations had professional wise men and wise women. Remember the wise men who come to visit Jesus at his birth? Like, that was a thing. You could, like, you could be a wise man as your job. That was a profession. Um, but the kings, the rulers, were also expected to be wise. So I'll just give a quick little tour. But the Bible talks a lot about this wisdom tradition in the neighboring countries around Israel. So we're told that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. The prophets um, Jeremiah and Obadiah both talk about the wise men of Edom to the south. 
Judges 5 tells us about wise princesses in the house of Sisera, the Canaanite. And the book of Daniel, you might remember, talks about what seems to be a large group of wise men in Babylon. Remember, they're the ones who were going to lose their heads if nobody could interpret the king's dream, right? That's the guild that Daniel's brought into, the wise men of Babylon. So there were lots of wise men and women in the ancient Near East, and that was true in Israel, too. Um, you have people in Israel like Ahithophel, one of David's advisors, um, and the wise women of Tekoa, the wise women of Abel. But apparently, in Israel, Solomon topped all the charts. First Kings says that, and I'm quoting here, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, okay, from both sides. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, Haman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Okay, this is kind of an enormous thing to say because there were a lot of wise people in these other countries. But you begin to understand why somebody could actually become famous for being wise given how highly valued wisdom was in these cultures. So let's talk a little bit more about this kind of wisdom tradition. What was it? Well, the wisdom tradition was a school of thought um, that kind of focused on understanding the order of things. Okay, the assumption was there's a divinely planted order in the world, and it's wise people who look for it. So wisdom literature looks for order, for patterns, in all kinds of things, in human relationships, um, patterns in the power of speech, patterns in the problem of suffering, patterns in nature. And these observations, this wisdom, is collected into short, pithy sayings, or proverbs. Um, in Hebrew, the word is mashal, which at its root means comparison, okay? Um, so you see a lot of comparisons, for example, in the Proverbs that you have in the Old Testament. The one that my mother made me and all my sisters memorize when we were growing up is this comparison. He who meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. <laughs> right? You're going to get bit. <laughs> you step in as something that's not your, your fight. Um, but that sort of comparison, right? Recognizing patterns. These were insightful observations about life. Short and sweet, so that this wisdom could be passed down. That was another big thing. It's not just, you don't just learn wisdom. It, teaching it is a big emphasis. Pass it along. And these proverbs were generally pretty concrete, okay? Western proverbs tend to be much more abstract. So in the West, we've, we used to have the proverb, in union is strength. But the equivalent Arabic proverb says the same thing in a much more concrete way. Two dogs killed a lion. Okay? <laughs> same idea. In union is strength, but much more concrete. Um, or we used to say in the West, pretty is as pretty does, right? <laughs> the Hebrew equivalent goes like this. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without good sense. <laughs> okay? It's concrete. It's something you can picture. You can't picture pretty is as pretty does, right? But you can picture gold jewelry like in a pig's nose, right? <laughs> now, sometimes Western proverbs are concrete, right? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. But Eastern proverbs, Hebrew proverbs, almost always are. They're things you can picture. So first... Wisdom was communicated through Proverbs, and they were very concrete. Um, and we, we, this is true of Solomon. We're told in 1 Kings that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs and over 1,000 songs. Secondly, wisdom in Israel was really practical. Okay, The Hebrew word that the Bible uses for wisdom, chokmah is the word, actually means something more like skill. 
And in fact, in other parts of the Bible, that same word is used for all kinds of other skills, like woodworking, weaving, shipbuilding, musicianship, even military strategy. Okay, it's a practical word. And in the wisdom literature um, of the Bible, this word basically means life skill. Okay, that's what wisdom is. It's the ability to live life in the best possible, most effective way. It's life skill. It's understanding and insight, but not like in a like abstract coffee shop philosophy way, right? It's understanding how to live and knowing what to do. So in the Bible, wisdom isn't wisdom unless it's useful, unless it's put to use. Wisdom is something you do. And I've heard it put this way. Wisdom means understanding things as they really are and living accordingly. Get it? Wisdom is understanding things as they really are, getting the patterns, and living accordingly. Foolishness, on the other hand, in the wisdom literature of the Bible, means living in your own imaginary world out of touch with reality. Living in your own imaginary world. That's why the Proverbs say the fool says in his heart there is no God. Mm. Like that's out of touch with reality. Okay, that's foolishness. So first, wisdom was communicated through concrete comparisons. And secondly, wisdom was practical. It had to do with how you lived. But third, the ancient idea of wisdom included what we think of as natural science, okay? So remember, wisdom meant understanding things as they really are, and that included observations about the natural world. So, for example, those of you who've ever read the book of Job might remember that Job and his friends demonstrate their wisdom by explaining patterns and creatures that they see in the natural world. That's what wise guys did, right? So Solomon's wisdom also included a lot of natural science. So 1 Kings, again, this same passage, says this about Solomon's wisdom. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also spoke of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And all people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So um, this science department is like, I don't know. The Cambridge of the ancient world, right? The FSU of the ancient world. Like, this is where things are happening, right? So Solomon was an internationally renowned scientist as well. Because um, in the ancient Near East, the wise were the scientific experts. They gathered information, they conducted experiments. We see all of this in the wisdom literature in the Bible. So think all of this together. The wise in the ancient Near East, they're studying the patterns of the natural world. They're studying the patterns of the human heart. And they're studying the patterns of the ways that God interacts with us. So they're kind of like scientists, psychologists, and theologians all rolled into one, okay? That's the wise. It was an understanding of the world as it really is in every way. Um, in Israel, wisdom also had this very personal character. It was the wisdom of Yahweh, the wisdom of the Lord. We're not just like watching and guessing. It's like given to them by the Lord. And that's why you get this repeated refrain in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, wisdom right? Because if it's his wisdom and he's the one who knows how the world really is, you can't really get wisdom apart from knowing him. Okay, so we've looked at Solomon's wisdom, his tradition. Let's look again at what Jesus says in Luke 11, verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Wiser than Solomon? 
We just read he was the wisest of everybody, right? But the interesting thing is that when we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus is actually a wisdom teacher par excellence, right? He's the quintessential sage. So think about this for a minute. When, just like the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon during his reign, wise men from the East come to visit Jesus when he's just a baby, right? No wonder this freaked Herod out. That's what you do when you're visiting a king. Like, wise men come visit kings. When Jesus is only 12, his parents lose track of him. Remember the story for three days in Jerusalem? And Luke 2 says they find him, I'm quoting here, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding. That's a word from the wisdom literature. His understanding, his wisdom, and his answers. At age 12. It's the first thing we hear about him after his infancy. He's amazingly wise. That's what amazes people first. Later, as an adult, Jesus is always talking in parables and proverbs, right? In fact, the Greek word for parable, parabole, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for proverb, mashal. So literally, whenever you see the word parable in the New Testament, you could substitute proverb. It's the same word. So Jesus tells parables or proverbs that explain the ways of God by comparing them to the patterns of the natural world, right? That's right. So he put another parable or proverb before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. Or he told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. <clears throat> Jesus also uses these kind of short, pithy sayings, proverbs that make use of concrete images, right? So he says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Like that's something you can picture. <laughs> Or, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Or think about the way that he uses the patterns of nature in his teaching. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Or this, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. How did he know that? Because he was wise. He was a scientist, right? He's describing the natural world. But Jesus is also able to solve and to pose all kinds of trick questions and riddles. This is another wise man, wise guy thing, right? So when he's asked a trick question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Like, that was a trick question. And he tricks them back. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And listen to how they respond. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Okay, that was a wise way out of a trick question. But he can ask tricky questions too. So in Matthew 21, the chief priests say to him, Why, what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus turns the riddle on them, right? He answers them, I'll ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. <laughs> and he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do. <laughs> so these riddles and trick questions, this is a wisdom thing. Jesus is a sage. 
Mm-hmm. We as Christians often talk about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament roles of prophet, priest, and king, mm-hmm. but he also fulfills the role of the sage or the wise man, mm-hmm. which, as we've seen, was sometimes connected to the role of the king, but there's um, a specific nuance to it. So Jesus is the one who explains the world as it really is, right? He explains the way God works, the way that people work, the way that creation works. And of course, he didn't just explain the world. He also fixes it, right, by his death and resurrection. But one of his major roles is kindly, truthfully, candidly explaining things the way they really are. (laughs) And the apostles recognize this about Jesus. In, In Colossians, Paul describes Jesus as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1 refers to Jesus as the Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you can see why it's such a scandal that Jesus' listeners are demanding a sign, but they're failing to recognize his wisdom the way that the Queen of Sheba recognized the wisdom of Solomon, okay? But there's something else going on that's also a scandal. There's a second response that Jesus wants these people to have that he's not seeing. So look at verse 32. Thank you, Tori. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now that's kind of an understatement, right? Something greater than Jonah? Like he was probably the most reluctant, disobedient, stubborn prophet in the Old Testament, right? Greater than Jonah. Not hard to top him, right? Um, But even though he wasn't such a hot prophet, he sees what's probably the most dramatic response of repentance in the whole Bible. That's true. Right? So even though he wasn't a great prophet, when he did speak God's word to the Ninevites, they repented. They turned around. They changed course. At Jonah's preaching, Jonah, right? This was a total shocker, because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was one of the most brutal regimes of the ancient Near East, right? They were the ISIS of ancient Mesopotamia. Mm. And I've talked about this a bit before, but Assyria was a war machine with a terrifying army. Um, But even worse, they were totally brutal, and they relied on terror to intimidate their enemies. So they impaled people, they skinned people, they led their POWs away by putting hooks through their noses. Um, If I was Jonah and I was sent to the capital of their empire, like I would have been freaked out too. But these terrorists, these Ninevites, when they hear Jonah's preaching about the impending judgment of the living God, they repent in dust and ashes. That's right. The king puts on sackcloth. And so Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Like, can we just pause to absorb how radical that is? Mm -hmm. Like, at the judgment, these bloodthirsty, previously bloodthirsty Ninevites, are going to make the first century respectable, law-abiding citizens of Judah look bad. That's a crazy thing to say. Why? For the one reason that when they were confronted with the rebuke of the living God, they responded, they repented, they turned, they changed. That's the scandal of God's generous grace, right? Repentance paves the way for this incredible, no-holds-barred forgiveness and grace to anyone 
to anyone, to the Ninevites. So better the Assyrian who put on sackcloth and mourned his sin and changed his ways than the Judean leader who pretended that he was righteous. That's right. And it's so easy for, do, for us to do that same kind of pretending, right? Like how often, and I'm preaching to myself here, do we go around our days like pretending that we're living better and doing better than we really are? That's unnecessary. God just wants repentance, confession, change of direction, not mm. perfection, mm. not pretending. Mm. Mm. I've heard it said this way, and I love it. God exposes what we try to cover, but he graciously covers over what we expose mm. to him and to each other, right? He exposes what we try to cover, but he graciously covers over what we expose. Mm. So Jesus chooses two examples of the way that people should be responding to him. The Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba were people who responded to God's chosen teachers with humble hearts. So the Queen of Sheba sought out and listened to the wisdom of Solomon. The Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. They listened, they repented, they turned around. Those are the two responses that Jesus wants from these folks. But they're not doing that the people he's talking to. Some of them are like kind of standing over his teaching, not under it. They're demanding a sign, they're testing him, they're basically saying, oh yeah, we'll prove it, right? And there's kind of an unspoken phrase, an unspoken implication at the end of each of these verses. So look again at verses 31 and 32. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here, implied, and you are not listening to his wisdom. Mm -hmm. Right? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, and you're not repenting at his preaching. Mm -hmm. Right? So from this picture that Jesus paints of the day of judgment, it sounds like God's questions are going to be not, did you do your best to live a good life? But more like this, okay? Did you listen to the wisdom of my son? Did you believe what he said about reality? And two, did you repent? Did you change in response mm. to what he said? So we need to be asking ourselves these questions, right? Is this true of our lives? Are we listening to the wisdom of Jesus? Do we believe, really believe, what he says is true about reality? And are we changing, are we repenting in response to what he says? What changes do we need to make in the sort of rhythms and patterns of our daily life to make sure that these things are happening? So, like the Queen of Sheba, how can we seek out God's great wisdom, even if it's an inconvenient trip? And I, I just confess that so often when I have a difficult decision or problem in front of me, my default is to consult all my friends and lots mm. of websites mm. and WebMD and whatever, <laughs> or like to get stuck in a sort of problem-solving brain loop in my head, which is just stupid given that the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden has made himself available to me, right? He's offered to share those treasures freely with us. That's right. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. <laughs> Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Jesus is so wise, friends. 
And he wants to share that wisdom with us so we can live in line with the world as it really is, with the reality of the world as it is. Are we seeking out Jesus' wisdom? Do we trust that he'll give it to us? And like the Ninevites who responded to Jonah, how can we do less pretending and more repenting? With God, with each other? What would it look like if we were quicker to face the truth and speak the truth with each other? I had this great interaction. This sounds so minor, but this is where the rubber meets the road. With this mom at school this week, and I approached her to ask to follow up on something that she'd said a couple weeks ago, and, um, and I hadn't heard back from her when I thought I'd hear back from her. And I said, you know, I just wanted to check in with you. And she said, you know what? I'm just so disorganized. And I was like, oh, thank you for saying that. She didn't spin it. She didn't say, oh, we've had a crazy week. Or let me tell you everything. She was just like, I'm sorry. I've totally been disorganized. And that was like a part of grace and life to me. It was like, yeah, we're not, yeah, she's weak. I'm weak. We can be honest with each other. Um, can we do less pretending and more repenting? And more modeling of God's like radical grace to each other, too. Instead of spinning the truth to ourselves and to each other and really to the Lord, like, can we just repent? So are we listening to Jesus? Are we repenting in response to what he says? And then I would say let's make sure as we talk to our friends, too, who don't know the Lord, um, that when they think about the end of time, these are the questions they're thinking about. Like, we all want to be thinking in a wise way, in a way that lines up with the reality that we can expect on that day. Because um, even though it might seem counterintuitive, God's not going to be asking how hard we're trying to be good. He cares about how we're responding to his son, Jesus. Because, because, right, Jesus is our only hope of standing righteous before God. Mm -hmm. Right? That's why that's the bottom line. That's why those are the questions. On the last day, he is our only hope of standing before God. That's how the world really is. So it's foolish. It's out of touch for us to ignore that reality. Let's pray that the Lord just plants the truth of that reality more and more deeply in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your matchless wisdom. Queen Sheba arrived in Israel and said, I didn't even know the half of it. Boy, do we not even know the half of your wisdom, Lord. Thank you. And we thank you for your radical grace, Lord. You are so ready to forgive as we repent. Lord, would you help us to live in line with the reality of the world as it is and of the truth of your son, Jesus? Would you help us to respond to him in the way you need for us to do? In Jesus' name.